always an interesting thing to consider what topic to bring forward to a group of people who are on retreat. Sometimes people come in with a plan for the month or a plan for the retreat of what they're going to offer on what particular day. And sometimes it's more spontaneous. Sometimes it's more relevant to topics that are actually coming up for people in interviews. Certain themes that are being heard that give the sense that, oh, maybe it would be good to talk about that right now. That might be of benefit in particular. And then that causes the laying aside of any plans that might have been there to do something else. So tonight I'd like to give a talk on the topic of forgiveness. And I'll start by telling a story which is about my Saturday afternoon routine when I was a child. Not every Saturday, but often was part of the routine. My mother would take uh, the children down to the church and we would go into the Catholic Church and we would go into see the priests in the confessional and we would go in there and we would tell him what we'd done since the last time we'd been to confession that represented our childlike transgressions. And some of these were things that were just particular to church rules, you know, particular things that were religion. But it was mostly about sila what particular things that uh, I'd been up to that weren't quite up to snuff in the SELA department. So you'd go in there and you'd talk about you know, disobeying your parents or, you know, some petty theft of candy or <laughs> uh, fighting with uh, your siblings or that kind of stuff. Maybe you never did any of those things when you were little. But. but it was a very interesting experience because it really required that the child at a fairly young age, like say from the age of seven up, actually turn their mind to pay attention to what they were doing in a moral sense. And part of the way you would describe your childhood misdeeds would include things like, well, were you aware that you were doing that at the time you were doing it? Or, you know, did you do that with intention? And did you know that was wrong at the time that you were doing it? So it would actually go into some examination or some investigation of the particular mind states that were there with the, the actions. And although people have a lot of different experiences with this kind of exercise in childhood, I can remember that for me, coming out of confession, there was a real feeling that something had been cleared or something had been cleaned up, that there was kind of feeling like, okay, there's a fresh start here. That my heart and mind felt unburdened by things that it hadn't even really fully realized were being carried in some kind of way. It's interesting, I can remember some of my uh, little uh, Protestant friends saying, oh, you Catholics, you know, you get to do anything and then you just go tell the priest and it's all okay and they just tell you it's okay and you know. But it really wasn't like that at all. It really required a certain degree of honesty and inward turning um, that was very useful, at least it was useful for me. And in recalling this, 
I can really appreciate why many or most religious systems have some means or some mechanism like this. So in the Buddhist tradition, you know, you might see this as part of um, the gathering of uh, monastic sanghas where people bring forward their misdeeds and uh, talk about them, take responsibility for them. Uh, you know, in Judaism, there's the Day of Atonement. Many different religions have of a variation of this. Which leads to the thought, well, maybe there's some real wisdom in that. Maybe there's a real function for those kinds of rituals or routines or methods. And you can see why it's so useful. Because if you can imagine what it would be like if there was no way to be discontinuous with our past errors or harm, where error would just lead in an inexorable way into more error, with one harm leading to a repetition or a retaliation. So on and on it would go with no way to stop this chain reaction and no way to rectify it and no way to clean it up. Once damage or harm was done, it would last a lifetime or until it organically burned itself out given its natural half-life. And that's what the way it is if there is no access to forgiveness, however you characterize that. And when I was thinking about this topic, I thought, well, it's really important to come up with a definition, a quite specific definition of this, I think. So for me, I came up with this definition that Forgiveness is the process of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. It involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings which are related to it. That's kind of a mouthful. So I'll read it again. (laughs) I'll listen to it again. Forgiveness is the process of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. It involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings which are related to it. So if we were going to look at some of the associations that might be present for us when we're considering this intention to forgiveness, I really noticed when I started to think about this or reflect on this topic that there's a lot of different associations present there. And some of them are quite contradictory to each other. So many different words and feelings, some of which seem to be quite at variance with others, but the associations I came up to included things like acceptance and letting go, Regret, remorse, guilt, and shame. Resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation. Freedom, peace, acceptance, renewal, reconciliation. Duty, obligation, putting on a false face, denial, minimizing, liberation, detachment, release. So you see in that both the resistance to this idea of forgiveness and the 
faux versions that can be there, the unskillful versions that can be there when we start thinking about this, and also some of the higher potentials of this particular formation of intention in the heart and mind. So if we were going to consider this forgiveness, it could be useful to look at what reasons there might be that we would want to do such a thing. So we can start with the basic observation of the first noble truth, which is there is suffering in life. And then we could add a few tag-ons, which include sometimes we cause it. And sometimes it's inflicted upon us by others. And sometimes both of those things are true. Sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or others' suffering. And then sometimes suffering just happens in the operation of life. It just does. Sometimes it just does. And it's very interesting because our body-mind systems are really geared to notice suffering of course, and to try to avoid it, of course. This is part of our instinct for self-preservation, for (coughs) self-care. And it's a great paradox that this instinct for self-care can sometimes express itself in response to injury by never letting ourselves forget it in keeping it alive in a certain sort of way. And this is organic too. We know, for instance, that difficult memories are stored in the body and mind in a different way than non-traumatic ones are stored. So difficult memories are stored with lots of alarms and flashing red red lights around them that tell our heart and our body and mind, you better watch out, you better take care, you know, it might happen again. Uh, And the result can be that our whole system is easily startled, easily, easily revives the fear and the anger and the memories, often in response to something that is just remotely associated with the original event. And I'm sure, you know, many of us have had this experience, right? I can remember once uh, being in a car accident where I was sitting at a red light completely stopped and somebody, you know, ran the light and then bounced off a car and then hit my car. And I can remember the sound of the car coming towards me in the Portland rain, right? The sound of tires on churning up water. And for a while after that, every time I was in the, in the car and I heard like tire, wet tire rain sounds, there was a re, uh, a renewed uh, experience of that feeling of fear and, (gasps) you know, something bad is, is going to happen. Just stirred up again by the memory of that sound. You know, and when you look at what's going on with people who have PTSD or uh, have trauma, you're talking very much about this process of, of how the heart and mind, the body stores memory of particular emotions in a way that allows the physical body to quickly get activated in order to avoid or get away from, flee from, or freeze in relationship to the original experience. And this is part of what's at play too when we talk about this topic of forgiveness. Because sometimes the whole system is saying, you know, don't forget, you know, you gotta be on guard, you gotta watch out. And yet, if we keep our past suffering alive to help prevent future suffering, that's a state of dukkha in and of itself, isn't it? keeping that alive, keeping that activated. 
So how can we break this pattern of suffering, this hold, this attachment that we have to it sometimes? How can we open the mind to the possibility of freedom, of living in the present with wisdom and allowing the past to take its place as the past? And the answer to that is in the practice of forgiveness. And you can see the wisdom in this because otherwise our own unskillful actions or the unskillful actions of others can create a kind of cul-de-sac where we're locked into an unwholesome, difficult relationship with the present suffering caused by those remembered deeds. And there can be a kind of unskillful suffering fusion to the very source of the suffering, whether it's to a person or to an event or to an action or to a particular memory. So there really needs to be a way that we can break loose from this round and around of dukkha which sometimes is so strong, so strongly, deeply conditioned that it can almost seem like it defies the law of impermanence. But without the capacity to move forward, to let go and let things change, we're bonded to our most painful experiences and closed around them. And we're stuck there And the the Buddha talks about the role that story and memory has in keeping us stuck when we're unskillful in relationship to it. So in the Dhammapada, he says, he talks about self-talk and what we voluntarily or choose to bring up and recite to ourselves. And he says, Look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. He says, live with such thoughts and you live in hate. So forgiveness is the way out. It's the way to begin again, to unstick from this suffering and judgment. A way to begin to thaw what's been frozen so that things can start to move again. They can be released from that uh, static contraction. And in this, to open options, to open choices, to open new ways of being, rather than being chained to a cycle of reactivity to a memory of past experience. It's really important to acknowledge that forgiveness is a process. So it's not an act of will. And you may have noticed this for yourself that it's not an act of will because probably many of us have had the experience where something's happened and, and in response to the dukkha or perhaps in response to the wisdom we've gone, okay, okay, I forgive you, I forgive you, I'm over it, I forgive you, I'm over it. Kind of shoving it away or thinking, you know, just the saying of that or the, you know, wanting that to happen or verbalizing it in that way is going to have the effect of unhooking or unsticking the mind, but it doesn't really work that way. But we can work with what freedom of mind that is actually available to us. So even though this can't be done as an act of will, generally speaking, we can acknowledge that the intention to forgive is essential to beginning the process. And it's wise to think of it as a process. This intention to forgive is part of a decision, part of a choice coming from our wisdom mind. So the decision is to no longer attach to the painful present results 
of the unskillful actions of ourselves or others. And inherent in this is an understanding that it's in our interest to let go, to know, to let go, to begin this process, to no longer insist on ignoring a truth, whether that's a truth about something that we've done or that someone else has done. And to begin the process of letting go, of telling a story in a way which gives us so much suffering in relationship to it. And just as I said, this can't be done by an act of will, but we can start with intention. Timing is everything in working with forgiveness. Timing is everything. So the Buddha often talks about the totality of the causes and conditions, clear comprehension of what's going on. We have to be ready for the undertaking. And that means that there has to be enough stability of heart and mind and enough literal safety to undertake this often challenging practice. So there needs to be readiness, steadiness, and safety present. Sometimes it's actually premature to consider forgiveness. Sometimes we're still too involved with the original injury. We're still bleeding in a certain kind of way. And when this is the case, you know, we really need to tend to ourselves first to restore an inner sense of safety and well-being. We can't undertake doing something scary when we're feeling directly endangered. So often we can begin the process in a really gradual kind of way. So maybe you would begin, for instance, by entertaining the possibility that you might at some point consider maybe forgiving. And this is a step, but it's a very big step, right? You're not (laughs) entertaining the possibility that you might at some point consider maybe forgiving. But it's, to, to go back to the image that I used in the last talk of the small seed under the right circumstances actually cracking the big rock as it grew organically, that generation of intention right at the beginning, even if it seems like it's just such a tiny start, really is the beginning of this process. There's another part of this as well, which is the necessity of acknowledging error wisely. When I was describing earlier the list of possible associations with forgiveness, there was a line of phrases that I used that ended with, that included things like, you know, putting on a happy face and, you know, denial and where, oh, no, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't mind. You know, it's all right. I understand. I don't, you know, like paper over paper over paper over paper over. Smooth it out, smooth it out. But it's really important to realize that forgiveness doesn't mean denial. It doesn't mean that we minimize the damage done or blur accountability. In fact, it's important that we do quite the contrary. And I say that because there are things that are important to learn in situations where forgiveness is coming up as a topic. So if we were really going to look, we'd see that in many cases the harm was done when basic sila, non-harming, was either forgotten or ignored. And then from that, unskillful actions of body, mind, and speech cause damage. 
but the door was open through a breach of sila. And that's important to recognize how that came to pass. So we can be clear about responsibility and acknowledge what we've done in ignorance or what somebody else has done. And in fact, it's important not to let the harm go unexamined. Because we can learn how to avoid harm in the first place by considering how the unskillful actions arose, what the causes and conditions were that let it to happen, that led to wrong action. So this is an example of using the power of reflection and investigation in order to actually seek understanding about how this particular thing came to be. There's an interesting uh, set of teachings in the middle-length discourses on the Buddha's advice to Rahula, who was his uh, son who came to the monastic order and was there as a novice monk. And the, the way I read the backstory on this particular teaching was I kind of got the idea that Rahula was getting himself in a little bit of trouble. And he got, it's not said, but I, I don't know, maybe I've been around too many kids, but. <laughs> so he got taken to, the, to see the Buddha and for teachings. <laughs> so the Buddha gave some teachings and the, and the Buddha said that, told his son that in order to purify thought, word, and action, it's really important that we recognize and admit mistakes. And in fact, he encouraged Rahula to acknowledge the unwholesome acts that he might do to his teacher. And the phrase that he used is, uh, you should open it, open it, disclose it, reveal it, and then undertake restraint for the future. So when I hear this particular story, I, I have this little internal ping that goes, oh, well, maybe going to confession and <laughs> getting this teaching from the Buddha are not completely different things. There's this idea of bringing it, bringing it forward, of non-concealment, of acknowledgement, which is another way of saying making it conscious, making it visible, bringing mindfulness to it bringing to bear the, all the wholesome factors that are present there with mindfulness and which may accompany mindfulness. So in the case of our own unwholesome actions, we identify what we did that was unskillful and by opening to the harm that was involved with that, we allow ourselves to feel why we wouldn't want to do something like that again. So we feel remorse and resolve with a sincere heart not to repeat that error. You know, do we repeat that error? Quite possibly, especially if it came out of delusion. But we've at least begun the process of recognizing, don't want to go down that road. Don't want to do that again. I see what happened with that. And in order for that renewed commitment for non-harming to be present and be strong, to hold integrity with that, we need to let register the painful nature of the outcome of the unskillful actions that we did. And on a more pragmatic level, of course, it's not just about acknowledgement, but you know, once we've examined it and looked at the causes and conditions and what was going on when this actually took place, we can begin seeing if there are appropriate other things that we need to do in order to be a non-repeater of this particular thing, to protect ourselves and others from harm that came in this particular kind of way. And this might involve something like, okay, 
what was going on when I did that? Oh, I was drunk on my ass. Okay, well maybe I can't drink. Maybe I shouldn't drink at all. Maybe I need to get in a 12-step program. Right? Or, you know, I, I always uh, <coughs> dump my rage on <coughs> my close friends when they disappoint me in the slightest. You know, I have this idea that this pattern goes way back in my family. Maybe I need to do some psychological investigation of the roots of this in order to uh, make it more conscious. So we can take additional steps that are appropriate to strengthen our capacity to actually not repeat it. If appropriate, we can make amends or restitution or allow someone else to make an apology or make amends if appropriate, and there's a lot in that uh, qualifier. So we can learn to release the tie to others that has the nature of hatred, fear, resentment, guilt, or shame. And that whole topic of guilt and shame and wisdom is a really important piece of this. So there's a way in which we can take responsibility for our actions which isn't skillful. And that is to use our moral failings or our sila breaches or our unskillful actions, however you want to characterize it, as proof positive that we're bad and worthless human beings, right? It's like evidence. Like, I did this, ooh, unskillful, ooh, harm, ooh, unskillful, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. But it's not skillful, and it's kind of self-centered in a way, right? Because instead of becoming clear about what behaviors, what actions of body, speech, and mind, we need to change and then taking the responsibility to change those behaviors, we kind of collapse into this state of reverse narcissism where we're making it all about us. Like, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so damaged, I'm so, you know, whatever the story is, I'm so hopeless, I'm so evil, I'm so insensitive. So, you know, in the, that shame and guilt are suffering states, and to relate to them in unwholesome ways really undercuts the real work, the real work that leads in the direction of liberation and which actually avoids future suffering. So getting uh, caught in guilt and shame is unskillful, at least in part, because it disempowers us. It disempowers our heart-mind because it loses confidence in the potential that we have to evolve towards greater wisdom. Just when we need to come forward and kind of reinforce our wholesome impulses, this reinforce and strengthen uh, the integrity of our system and the wisdom and turning in the direction of non-harming, we kind of collapse into like a, uh, a self-attack and blame, which results in us losing the capacity to actually do the kinds of things, move in the kind of direction that we want to and need to move in in order to both change our behavior, but just in general, evolve in the direction of more wisdom and happiness. So even when we form the intention of forgiveness and are working with this directly, it's important to open to the truth of what continued present suffering there may be. And, you know, those of us who have had the experience of either doing something or been the person that was on the receiving end of something that was really unskillful, you know for yourself 
it's usually not a one-time thing, right? It's not like you can usually say, well, I forgive it, I'm over it, and there may be a big heart opening and, you know, the intention and a release and all the rest of it, and maybe even reconciliation. But that doesn't mean that tendrils of this, parts of this, may not arise again. Have you noticed this? Right? You think you're over the X, and then you see something on Facebook, and like, maybe not so much. <laughs> not completely, oh, that again, right? Maybe not as strong as the first time, but you know, not completely disappeared. So even after working with forgiveness, we can still experience the continued arising of anger, sadness, fear, remorse, guilt. So then the practice is learning to work with these with skill and with metta without closing around these particular difficult uh, feelings and without identification with them. So the way I've kind of... uh, gotten to uh, image this for myself is this is like space junk you know uh, like piece of uh, pieces of asteroids or meteors or something every once in a while like they orbit orbit through on some sort of cycle and then you'll have a repeat of some aspects of this experience as time goes on, they get more and more particleized and less and less troublesome. But to think that it's all gone with the first experience of heart opening or letting go is setting ourselves up. So we can commit to working with these uh, arising difficult states in a way that serves our liberation just like you would any other state of anger or sadness or grief or resentment or any of the rest of that. And this too might involve getting additional support and training in some sort of way. So, one of the methods that is most useful to people if you've, you've got this experience of being easily triggered by particular kinds of memories of harm is somatic experiencing, which is a a way of bringing mindfulness to the body that allows you to develop the capacity to be able to open to this kind of emotional distress, which might be sourced in trauma just a little bit, and then choose and have the capacity to redirect awareness to something else instead of just getting flooded by this experience. Right? So you learn to titrate, to open them open to it just a little bit while there's equi- some poise, some mindfulness in the mind. And then out of discernment and wisdom, you redirect to something else in the interest of sustaining mindfulness, of keeping balance, of maintaining connection and grounding uh, the mind in wholesomeness. wholesomeness. And then you can open open to it again if it's continuing. So over time, the the body-mind system learns to be able to touch it, to be present with more and more of this cycle of arising distress without getting sucked into it, vortexed into it, or pulled down into it and lost in it. So it's a huge tool. And this is part of the way that uh, work is being done uh, with people who have PTSD and, and other kinds of situations where the uh, lower brain, the amygdala is basically, uh, sounding in response to seeing something that looks remotely like something like hap- that happened. You know, I gave you that micro example of my experience of, you know, hearing the tires in the rain and then the crash and then the, for a while being, you know, every time I heard tires in the rain and, you know, it was like, right? that was like a mini example of what I'm talking about. But the mind can learn to, to sustain it.
So they're technologies we can learn to help work with the recurrences in support of strengthening and deepening our letting go in relationship to this particular pattern of dukkha. Now some of the other topics or questions that sometimes come up in relationship to forgiveness include the whole question about reconciliation. And this is a really interesting piece. So I would, I would define reconciliation as an attempt to repair and reestablish relationships between or among parties involved in a situation of harming. We probably know about certain of these reconciliation attempts. So some of them that you've heard of that are political, for instance, would include what's going on in South Africa with their truth and reconciliation commissions, right? Where basically uh, commissions were set up and uh, people who had been part of... uh, the liberation struggle and part of trying to maintain apartheid came together and, and people basically came forward and voluntarily disclosed what they had done. Like, yes, I went to this village and I shot, you know, six people and, right, came forward to disclose the truth. And it was a, and is a huge experiment to see whether the society, whether the culture, could get past, let go of, bypass the inexorable returning of harm for harm, would people actually be able to forgive? Would there be reconciliation possible if people voluntarily disclosed and owned what they actually did? Mixed results. Not surprisingly. You know, there are other stories too about reconciliation. For instance, uh, the American congressman John Lewis, who was an early civil rights pioneer who was uh, very badly beaten in a, a civil rights march, had the experience many, many years later of having somebody show up at his congressional office who had been part of the group of policemen who had actually beaten him into the hospital. The guy that showed up was this very old man at this point and it had been weighing on his conscience and he wanted to come and say, I did this, it was really wrong. So sometimes reconciliation is possible. But sometimes it's not even advisable. You know, in some, time, some cases, connecting or reconnecting with somebody is quite unwise and can uh, be even dangerous. So there's no rule about reconciliation in relationship to forgiveness. So you could attempt an in-person reconciliation or not. You could communicate with the people or persons involved or not. You can have continued connection with somebody or not. So these are wisdom issues and really the larger context needs to be considered in making those decisions. You know, there are plenty of situations where the wisdom answer is just don't go there again. You know, leave that person alone. Don't require them to respond to you or don't get yourself involved with, you know, that kind of circumstance again. It's just not skillful. And lastly, just to talk about the place of remembering in all of this. So letting go is not the same thing as forgetting. It's not like we can go into our heart and mind with an eraser and just that never happened, that never happened. 
but can we remember with discernment and not with, uh, not by adhering to suffering? There is learning that takes place in regard to experience. This, uh, right now in the news cycle, there are a lot of stories, today actually, many stories about the 100th anniversary of the genocide of Armenians. About one and a half million people were um, were murdered um, in what is uh, now Turkey uh, and adjacent areas by um, people from the Ottoman Empire. They haven't forgotten that experience. And in fact, they've spent a hundred years trying to get acknowledgement of the fact that it actually happened. And you can see the importance and the skill and the wisdom in actually acknowledging these kinds of things and that they happened. And you can see how crazy it can make people when it's not acknowledged. When it's met with, oh no, that wasn't genocide. Oh no, that didn't happen, right? Oh no, those concentration camps in World War II, they weren't like that, you know? Those numbers are all inflated. It makes people crazy. So that, you know, the truth is the foundation for the healing and there, there are things that are important not to forget. You know, what are the lessons learned? What must we remember? You can remember a few years ago when there was the uh, tsunami, uh, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And remember some of the follow-up news coverage of that event there. You know, they showed a lot of video about the waves hitting and, you know, how high it went up on the adjacent uh, hills and mountainous slopes. And way above the village that had been rebuilt down at sea level were these stone markers that people had put like, I don't know, 600 years ago or something that basically said something to the effect of don't build below here because the water can come up this high. Somebody went to a lot of trouble (laughs) put those columns up to try to tell people, pay attention, remember this, don't forget this. So it's important to remember and not forget. So can we tell the story but can we tell it with love? Can we tell it in a way that points to the greater moral and psychological truths? You know, there is multi-generational trauma. There are historical harm and revenge cycles. To change the rules with which we respond to these to move away from blind condition response to these things, which are deeply conditioned hurts, can liberate us all. So this is actually a huge and very deep uh, aspect of practice because this is really where we come, become directly connected with our intention to move in the direction of what's wholesome, what's skillful, to evolve in the direction of uh, liberation, to be a person that puts goodness into the world. This is where all those impulses, all those intentions intersect with our personal history and our own experiences of harm that we've either done to others or have um, received from others. So if you're looking for places where the practice integrates with what is sometimes referred to as real life, daily life, this is an example that's very deep and very real. So to close, you know, can we just let our mind rest in these particular truths? 
First, all beings have the potential to purify their minds. And this is something that cannot be lost no matter how many obscurations there may be. We don't lose this intrinsic potential by our unskillful actions and neither do others. Secondly, all beings are the heirs to their karma. We and they are always planting seeds that will arise in our mind streams and in our lives. And it's in our interest to plant seeds of our own happiness and well-being. Thirdly, all beings, unless fully awakened, and you might say even then, I don't know, cause suffering to themselves and others through their actions. Fourthly, the past is gone. All things are impermanent. The bell once rung cannot be unrung. However, we can deal with the echo arising in the present in a way that minimizes the suffering of ourselves and others. And lastly, aversion is unpleasant and painful. To live in hatred and resentment is to forego our own happiness. Letting go is true peace. The Buddha says in the Dhammapada, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. May the merit of this practice be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.